0: Hi, everybody. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. We're popping in here with a very special announcement. For the month of March, we are releasing five new episodes, and we need your help. That's right. If you listen to Filmstrip Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, we need you to leave us a written review for the show. These help the show reach a bigger audience, and that is what we want to do.
1: Expand the reach. Even if you listen on another platform, you can still write a review on Apple Podcasts.
0: So as a gift back to you for this, for every five-star written review we receive, we're opening up the suggestion box to you all. That's right. At the end of your review, leave a comment with a movie you want us to review. Only caveat is it has to be something we haven't already reviewed. For a list,
1: check out the archives.
0: So at the end of March, we'll gather all the suggestions and we'll pull a winner out of the hat and review that movie in one of the coming summer months when we're usually doing our bi-weekly release. We'll do a special bonus show. We know we need the reviews to help expand the show's reach. And we figured since we were asking for this, least we could do is take a suggestion from one of you for our future show. And so once again, leave us a five-star written review on Apple, CastBox, Google, or Stitcher sometime in the month of March. Suggest a movie you want us to review, and at the end of March, we'll pull the suggestions and select a bonus review from you, our fabulous audience.
2: Now, on with the show. Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler filled as we discuss the plots, characters and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the fair use act section 504 C2 title 17.
0: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron.
1: And I'm Lindsay. And this
0: is a review of Duck Soup, starring Groucho Marx, Checo Marx, Harpo Marx, and finally Zippo Marx, Margaret Dumont, Louis Calhern, Raquel Torres, and Edgar Kennedy. Directed by Leo McCarey. released in 1933 on the Paramount Pictures. This one's considered to be... The Marx Brothers best film, or so I'm told by the internet, guys. And first off, Lindsay, welcome to Marx Madness. You definitely wanted in on Duck Soup because you said you owned this one, so you wanted to join us on this. But i got to ask the both of you, why is this one considered to be the best one?
1: Well, full disclosure, this is, I think, the only Marx Brothers movie I've ever seen. And I just watched it for the first time this week. So... <laughs> Um, I wanted in on it because I was given this film a number of years ago uh, when I was really starting to get into classic movies and a family member of mine gave it to me and it's just been sitting in my DVD pile for years and years. So when you brought it up, I was like, oh, I have that and I've never watched it. And now I have a reason to. And here we are. I've watched it twice now in the last week, so.
2: It's weird how, to me, how modern audiences have embraced this one, because at the time it was kind of just a moderate success, and it got mixed critical reactions, but it's like the generation after the Marx Brothers and forward who have really taken to this as like the classic Marx Brothers movie, because um, the Marx Brothers themselves were really disappointed with how it turned out, uh, and Paramount was also really disappointed with, like, the box office takes. But, like, for whatever reason, the next generation of critics who had a little bit more distance from the box office and could see it in the context of the the pre-World War II time in which it was filmed uh, warmed to it quite a bit more as kind of an anti-war picture. Uh, It's compared a lot to uh, Charlie Chaplin's The General, which came out around the same time. But uh, as Groucho Marx once put it, we were just four Jewish brothers trying to get a laugh. (laughs)
0: I will tell you the the things that popped in my head as I was watching this, and I'll try to bring them up in the moments that that they happen as we talk through this film. But I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know, I'm reading this, that this was the most popular thing. But like you have pointed out, Ron, it was sort of took took a generation of people to figure that out or to come to that conclusion, and I, I thought, well, the reason why is because the next generation of people have totally ripped this off, and this has been ripped off for decades. Like, everything else I've talked about in this retrospective, all the things this reminds me of, like, the entire Blake Edwards, Pink Panther only exists because this movie – at least three-fourths of the Mary Melody's Looney Tunes I've ever seen exist – because of skits in this, particularly the mirror one that we're going to talk about. And I'm not so certain that movies like The Distinguished Gentleman, Dave, and even going back to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, don't owe a lot to this. And then even Dr. Strangelove from Kubrick owes a lot to this movie.
2: Yeah, Dr. Strangelove definitely does. This is, um, that, uh, the mirror scene you're talking about is one of the most famous Marx Brothers bits. And it's one of the, one of their best love sequences. And, I don't know how much you watched of uh, I Love Lucy, but Lucy, one of her, one of Lucille Ball's first movies was one of the later Marx Brothers movies, Monkey Business. She got her start in the Marx Brothers movies, and in when her show was on the air, she brought Harpo on, and she and Harpo did the mirror gag, and it's really funny. <laughs>
0: I would. I'm gonna have to go look that up now because I I did watch a lot of I Love Lucy and I I don't know that I remember that, but yeah, I would love to see that. Uh, that's another one I forgot. But holy cow, like yeah, I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, all of that stuff from the 50s. Just mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's total Marx Brothers influenced. But it's fun though, Lizzie. You say you you've owned this and people have given this to you. I had never seen this before either. This is all still new to me. So I come to this retrospective as you know, Ron's the super fan. And I guess you and I are sort of like to look at this with the modern sensibilities of like everything that it influenced somewhere along the way. And you're somebody who's worked in a lot of theater and done a lot of stuff. And so much of this feels like the kind of thing you would do on a stage.
1: You're absolutely right. I, it's so, I have so many thoughts about this as it relates to theater and stage work and improv, but also as I was watching it to, you know, kind of chime in on you or, mirror you as we were just talking about um we as i was watching it i was like oh god this reminds me of monty python or this reminds me of this other scene and then i had to stop and say i should be saying they remind me of the marx brothers and nice. you know this movie reminds me of duck soup and not vice versa but i just saw this so
2: and you know that's fair that's uh, we are all Victims of, I didn't start out watching the Marx Brothers, I started out watching Looney Tunes, and then when I got a little older, I started to dig backwards and to figure out where the Looney Tunes got all their ideas from, and a lot of it goes back to the Marx Brothers. Yeah, uh, yeah how
0: are is funny. Freeling and Chuck Jones not sued into Oblivion? Is what I want to know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe parody is the the you know highest form of flattery or something. I don't know, but like really, that's so much happening
2: And it's weird because this is one of the more influential Marx Brothers in terms of the effect that it has later on. But it at the time it was not successful as we've established. And this was the movie where the Marx Brothers decide to leave Paramount because they fought with Paramount for years. And this movie is the one where they have finally had enough. They nearly, they nearly walked out of the studio and voided their contract before they did this movie. They were so uh, upset about it. But this movie, and specifically the soft response to this movie, is what gave Irving Thalberg the ideas for how to tinker with the act, make it a little bit more palatable, and to kind of usher the Marx Brothers into two of their bigger box office successes – when they finally joined with MGM. So uh, if it wasn't for duck soup, who wouldn't have a night at the opera and a day at the races.
0: Right. Which we've already talked about in our Mark's madness retrospective. So let's not go any further without giving the plot, Ron, tell people what in the world duck soup is and what is it about?
2: Ironically, the only aspect of ducks and soup is in the opening credits. So you can just kind of throw the title out. I'm not sure why they picked it. (laughs) What duck soup is about is a. In today's tongue, uh, the country of Fredonia would be called a failed state, a small quasi Eastern European backwater that depends heavily on the support of a plutocrat named Mrs. Teasdale, played by Margaret Dumont. If you're old like Jay and myself, imagine Imelda Marcos buying a Balkan country. If you're young <laughs> like Lindsay, imagine Elon Musk finally buying a supervillain lair on Isla Nublar. <laughs> what, <laughs> what Mrs. Teasdale wants, she gets and when she wants Rufus Firefly, Groucho Marx, installed as the leader of Fredonia, she gets her wish, despite the fact that Rufus is a swindler who is more interested in Mrs. Teasdale's money than in actually running Fredonia. A rival for Mrs. Teasdale's affection and wallet is the ambassador from neighboring Sylvania, Trentino, played by Louis Calhern. Not only does he want Mrs. Teasdale, he wants to take over Fredonia and turn it into a vassal state for Sylvania. And to that end, he's dispatched two spies, Chicolini, played by Chico, and Pinky, played by Harpo in the red wig that doesn't show up in black and white, to spy on Firefly and his attache, Bob Roland, that played by Zeppo. They're not very good spies, but because Ciccolini has a smart mouth, he's able to get a position in the government working for Firefly as the Minister of war. While the Sylvanians are conspiring on one side, Firefly and Roland are thinking of a way to kick Trentino out of the country. In true Groucho Marx fashion, this fails, and the roles are reversed. With an echoing slap, that seals the deal. Fredonia and Sylvania are on the brink of war. Chickalini and Pinky are dispatched to Mrs. Teasdale's home to steal Fredonia's war plans, but fail because, as established, they're bad spies. Chickalini is put on trial for treason, but during the trial, war is declared between Fredonia and Sylvania, and all the Fredonians break out into song and dance and head off to war. Chickalini, Pinky, Bob, and Rufus all take up arms, and in a crazy battle, Trentino gets caught in a makeshift pillory and pelted with fruit until he surrenders. Upon that happy news, mrs Teasdale breaks out the fredonian national anthem, only to also be pelted with fruit. To the beautiful sounds of Margaret Dumont being hit by fruit, credits roll. Hail, hail, fredonia.
0: That's a heck of a plot summary, and I think you've done a good job of summing up what happens in 60 minutes. This is a short, short thing. I'm like, man, not only was this pre-code, you know, because there's just a lot of body humor and some real slinky dress, in this we'll talk about, uh, but th- this is short. I-, I didn't realize that we were going to be going just a little over the old hour runtime, uh, but it's back before you had to have a certain length to be considered officially theatrical.
2: And I would say they they crammed so much stuff into the Hour and nine minutes, I believe that the runtime is. That I think if they had tried to pack more in, it would have just been more exhausting than anything else.
0: Yeah, can you imagine trying to get more gags in this? I mean, holy cow! Like it's like a gag a minute at some point. <laughs> nice. First things first, though. I gotta ask you two you guys to help me with something because this whole name Rufus T. Firefly brought something into my head that I don't think I necessarily need, but I kind of want in my life. I the Devil's Rejects. Rob... Oh, no, yeah. I need I need Rob Zombie to do a march Brothers movie. <laughs> I think that's what I, I, that's what I want right now. Uh, because, Rob, um, wow. Really Rob,
2: Zombie, Rob Zombie has tried for literally 15 years to do a Groucho Marx movie because he owns <gasps> the kidding. rights to Groucho Marx's autobiography. and He has he has spent millions of dollars trying to get this thing developed, shopping to Raditz Studios, because Rob Zombie is the Marx Brothers superfan. That's why you've got uh, Rufus T. Firefly, Otis B. Driftwood, et cetera, etc., etc in his horror
0: movies right I see I've just now put all that together too it was with this movie I was like oh wait a minute this has got to be a Rob's this is something Rob Zombies into And I looked that up and I saw oh wow he's a big Marks Brothers fan though I didn't know he was doing a he tried to do a Groucho movie I can understand why nobody would give him money for it have you seen the last five things he's done holy cow
2: and I mean a- admittedly it's an obscure uh, you know who really cares about the Marx Brothers at this day and age uh, other than you know nerds like me <laughs>
0: Well, I hope more people are because we are doing five, four of these Movies Month. But yeah.
2: Sorry, Jay, you're gonna get like ten downloads and they're all gonna be me. <laughs> okay,
0: We've well, yeah, we got more subscribers than that. Thank you. But yeah, uh, that's a uh, that's funny though that that worked out that way. So okay, l- let's get into this whole thing and. I, I want to get your impressions first here, Lindsay, too, because this is the first time you're joining this. So I have now seen Margaret Dumont play this same character twice before, even though there are movies that happen later. This is our reverse retrospective. This is such a weird way of doing this, but I love it because she's always playing the widowed super rich lady that Garacho is either hitting up for money or trying to seduce at the same time for her money. And I wanted to see what you thought of her as sort of Mrs. Teasdale, the <laughs> enough money to swing the government.
1: I loved it. I well, I loved the whole movie, but she was so she felt like an opera singer. She was just well, I mean, it's even joked about how large she is, even though she's not at all large. But there are so many jokes about her size throughout the movie. Um, But she has such a big personality. And I love that she just rolls right in there. And she's like, I'll give you the money if you put firefly in and they're like okay which you know is still kind of how it works so yeah i i really (laughs) i was like great this is great look they just cut right to the point and then there's a song and dance number so what's not to like
2: well uh as we've established another movie in the previous future movies margaret dumont before she became uh the straight man for the marx brothers was an opera singer
1: I did not know that. So and
2: she was also
0: a rich widow. <laughs> so they weren't uh, asking her to stretch much. It's what I is what I'm getting.
1: Well, but she what plays I, it really well. I like, think I, I, I mentioned
0: this on another show, but it's worth mentioning again. If you go look up the, the moment it's on YouTube when they gave Groucho an honorary uh, Academy award late in his life, not long before he passed away. He talked about Margaret Dumont being the best straight man that he ever worked with, who <laughs> never laughed at any of his jokes because she didn't get them, but that was what made her great. And I thought, well, what a what a sweet thing. I mean, apparently they, they really did have a great relationship, but I'm watching her again. And I realized I'm, I have to remember, I'm watching something that was made before, but I've seen what will come of this person in future movies, particularly like A Day at the Races. I think that's like a huge one for for them, in particular, in, in this retrospective at least. And I'm watching her just spin all of these people into a circle and, and you realize like you look at her, like there's nothing wrong with the way she looks, but she's not exactly what you call striking. You know, she doesn't really command a ton of presence except that she has all the freaking attitude in the world and knows it and just doesn't care. And that's what I loved about her in this one, because I felt like I got to see Margaret Dumont play a character that really just put her foot down other than just being the hypochondriac rich lady. You know, this time she actually had like a, point and she thought she was doing some good even if she was a little naive yeah it's
2: it's funny that you should mention that jay because um weirdly enough uh as she tries to do good in this movie ended up being kind of uh an international incident at the time because uh upon seeing it benito mussolini the dictator of italy banned it from his country as being personally insulting to him (laughs) I guess because of the uh, anti-war rhetoric kind of thing. But yeah. Uh, Also, it's really funny because this is the first movie where I noticed just how tall Margaret Dumont is. Yeah. And just how much taller she is than all of the Marx Brothers.
1: I couldn't tell if she was really tall or if they were really short.
2: I mean, Groucho is like 5'7", which is average height for back then. But she's like 5'10". So even today, Margaret Dumont's still tall.
0: And in heels, so she's over six feet tall most of the time when she's on the stuff. I noticed that, too. It's the first time that I had picked up on how much – just taller she was than than them. And it's also the first time I think I've really noticed Groucho dancing and what he does here. I mean, I've seen him kind of goof around and walk sideways and stuff, but I'm like, I just, I really liked, I really like watching what I felt like was Groucho develop the stranglehold kind of character that I've seen him play in later movies. Well, I mean, to
2: be fair, he's always kind of played this character, but this is, he's, he's a little bit younger here and a little bit more spry than he is in the later movies. And he's a little bit more free to just kind of do, uh, for lack of a better term, Groucho stuff, uh, because (laughs) by this time Paramount had basically washed their hands of the Marx Brothers and said, you idiots, just do whatever you want.
0: We should mention too, because I did mention it, that this is this is the last of the pre-code movies. In other words, where Hollywood had these moral standards that certain you know things had to live up to. And before this, I mean, there were there were a lot of cinema that now would would seem nowadays would be you know pretty tame compared to you know like the latest episode of The Bachelor or whatever, but where we're making out on the home court. But th- this kind of stuff it 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 was risque at the time. I mean, look at the way Raquel Torres is dressed or maybe not dressed. Like, she's barely wearing clothes most of this movie. Everybody's slinging around. There's a lot of, like, overt violence. I mean, they, the only thing they didn't have was was language, and I kind of felt like there was a lot of innuendo going on that I didn't remember from the later films.
2: Yeah, when you when you listen to it in with the lens of the later films, the postcode films, you realize just how much stuff that the Marx Brothers were able to get away with just because Groucho talked so fast, it was kind of hard to pick up on just how dirty he was. And if you go back even further, if you go back to, like, The Coconuts, which is 1929, uh, that one is full of, like, Croucho's sleaziness.
0: (laughs) So we haven't talked about him yet, but we need to bring it up now. This is our first experience with Zippo. And as I understand, this is the last movie he did with them? Is that before he went into, like, the -the behind-the-scenes role? Is that right?
2: Yeah, this was the last movie he did, period.
0: Okay cuz I I got to tell you like I I knew this going in that okay I finally getting to see Zeppo and I I read after I watched it that oh this is the last one he did and I was like mm, you can tell cuz he's barely a part of any of it like I I, I matter of fact I couldn't tell you much about Lieutenant Bob other than his name and that he had a lot of medals that didn't seem to really fit his Sure. But I mean, really, really, like I, I I'm watching this. And I'm going like, oh, I need to come up with something to say about Zeppo. And maybe that's the point. <laughs> There's really nothing to say.
2: Yeah. He got stuck with the uh kind of the straight, the Alan Jones type character uh, that you would see later in the movies. But by this point, I, I believe if my math is right, he had taken over as their manager as well as being in the act. So all the uh, disputes they were having with Paramount were basically filtered through him. So he was pretty much done with the act and and ready to focus on just being their manager. Which, I mean, it's hard enough to be like an a actor-director. I can't imagine how hard it would be to be an
0: actor-slash-manager. Well, Lindsay, you, you've you done a lot more performances than Ron and I could even dream about ever doing <sighs> together. What's it like to try to work – imagine yourself as Zeppo for a minute and you have to work opposite of Graccio, Chico, and Harpo.
1: Yeah, I I mean – That'd be tough, especially in especially in his position when you are tasked with multitasking, right? Like in that way, you're taking on a number of different roles, but also feeling like, and again, this is my only Marx Brothers movie that I've seen. So I don't, I haven't seen him in anything else with them because I haven't seen any other Marx Brothers <laughs> <laughs> movies, but uh, I feel like... I mean, you either you either have to embrace like the fact that you're just going to be overshadowed by certain people, um, and take a back seat and just do what you do, and take part in the play, which a lot of this movie I would consider is just like actor play. It's, Im- I mean, I don't know how much is improv, but a lot of it felt very reminiscent of things that we would. Uh, do in class or things that I would make people improv when I was directing or things that I would be forced to improv when I was in certain shows. So some people are just better at it. And, you know, that is what it is. Some people deal with that better than others. But I when I saw his name on our little outline, I was like, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well i don't eat it that's why we're mentioning it now <laughs> because there's not much to say about it because the truth of the, the matter is once again all the real goofy fun comes down to chico and harpo and i'll try to refer to them as their character names Chickalini and pinky here who absolutely terrorized the hell out of that poor peanut lemonade Venture. <laughs> I mean, I, I sat and watched that, and just I'm just rolling, watching this, going like, man, how much further can they possibly keep this skit going? And bear in mind, there's very little dialogue happening. It's all, it's really Harpo's cues. That guy and then Chico just coming right behind him, where they're, you're holding the leg, and then the hat gets burned, and they do it again. And it's it just goes on and on to the point that the guy destroys his own damn peanut, peanut stand. So
1: this is since we're on this subject, I directed a scene that was similar to this uh, for a show that was based in Commedia, which I studied and like Commedia dell'arte. So it's very physical comedy. And these scenes are almost impossible to (laughs) To block and direct, like you have to have incredibly talented actors who are really well versed in physical comedy to be able to pull something off like this. So, to watch it, and I don't know how many takes it took to get to where they were, but it's so, it was so fun and so impressive for me to watch, especially from the standpoint of, wow. I've tried to get actors to do that and I did not do this well at all.
2: Yeah. Having been on stage at least a few times, I can, I can confirm that my blocking was generally terrible (laughs) (laughs) and I I was really bad about uh, hitting the same mark more than twice. So, so trying to do something that complex uh, is a very intimidating process uh, for me who tended to just improv things
1: within like, the art of commedia, like it is mostly improv. And so they have very strict, I I won't say strict rules, but and not to go down like a rabbit hole with this, but there are very specific things that you're taught and you practice over and over and over and over again about how to interact and play with each other in this way. And it's very clear to me that they whether they knew, you know, these rules of physical comedy or not, they mastered it really well.
2: I would say that coming from as as prominent a stage in a vaudeville background as the March Brothers did, that they were really well versed in uh, the rules of physical comedy just because they're doing you know a hundred performances of whatever. You know, and they're touring around the country and they're being on Broadway and and stuff like that prior to this. And a lot of this material was, as usual, worked out in one of their stage shows. So I, I can imagine that they had this blocking all worked out, at least their part of it, before anybody else showed up on set.
0: Well, and a credit to a lot of that goes to Leo McCrary, for one, knowing how to set the camera and let them work in that space. But you got to give hats off to Edgar Kennedy, who plays that vendor, by the way, (laughs) who made a career out of like slowly but surely just blowing his top and and getting mad. Like you've seen him in a hundred things. You just didn't realize it was him. And now that I've said that, you'll be like, oh, yes. But he was the perfect foil for those two idiots. Because one, he's a foot taller than both of them and could probably squash him if you ever got a hold of him. <laughs> but t- they just terrorize him. <laughs> and, f- and what's amazing is that absolutely nothing they're doing has anything to do with the, quote, plot. Of the movie, <laughs> it's just here are two spies and they're the complete worst <laughs> people at that job possible. They're they're just con artists. And if this had been a later marks for this movie, this would have broken into them like breaking a PL apart and doing the usual musical interlude. We don't really get that with them in this one, uh, which was different for me. But to watch the two of them go back and forth with him and the way that he played off of them, it's it was impressive. Not only from how did you put that together, but just to watch how well it was streamed because, yeah, there's a few cuts and things, but honestly, you couldn't tell it as much. They did a really good job of letting the scenes work together when they were just, you know, raising this man's blood pressure.
1: They kind of reminded me of Jay and Silent Bob in Clerks. (laughs) That's
0: awesome. Now, oh gosh, I, I didn't put it <laughs> together, but you're right. Kevin Smith ripped this off too. What a right? god! <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> That's
2: a great point, though. You're exactly right, because you've got the one guy that all, is always talking and never shuts up, and the guy who doesn't talk at all.
1: Yep.
2: And I and guarantee Tyler. you, I guarantee you, Kevin Smith and do the Marx Brothers backwards and forwards from working at the video store. <laughs> Cause that's where I exactly. first started to, that's where I first started to watch Marx brothers movies. Cause I worked in a video store and I could take anything home. So I took anything home.
0: Literally. So I'm yeah. with this, but I that no, that is amazing. And that's a great point, Lindsay. I had not thought about Jay and Silent Bob, but you're right. Like this is a Jay and Silent Bob gag, just <laughs> with a lot less profanity. Um, no, and, it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's a Jay and
2: Silent Bob uh, bit right down to the use of hammer space. Cause Look at Pinky. What, what doesn't, what can't he like pull out of his coat?
0: Right? What tattoos doesn't he have? have, Which is. Yeah, the which little just, horn he keeps filling up with lemonade and the whole, and he's just bumping into you with it. And I'm like, I'm watching this guy and I'm like, he's going to get socked, right? Like, he's just going to get hit. And I'm like, nope, the guy's going to miss.
2: Well, no, what the, but the, the, the turnaround is so much sweeter because he just takes the horn out and turns it the other way around and honks it like eight times so it looks like he went himself.
0: Yes, which was, that was the great end of the first scene. It was like, alright, wise guy, you want it? And that, I, I'm watching this going like, that's finally Mo turning on the, you know, one of the <laughs> (laughs) other stooges and and having enough
2: (laughs) oh that's good that's good stuff
0: we mentioned him a little bit ago but i want to talk about i want to talk about lewis Calhern's ambassador trentino of sylvania i love this guy as a villain he may be my favorite villain of any of these marx brothers movies i've seen and he's not really a villain so much he's just the i don't know he's he's the uh shady guy that they're gonna You turn all the marbles against or whatever. But I really like this guy because I think he, he earnestly doesn't realize what's happening to him. (laughs) Like he is, and I almost want to feel like the actor had no idea what he was getting in. Ron, if you can shed light on that, let me know if I'm wrong. But I felt like watching him, he was just going, I don't, I don't know what these people are doing in front of me. What am I supposed to do with this? I mean, to,
2: to have to stand across the scene from Groucho Marx, you're, you basically are just signing up to be. You know, have someone run circles around you, literally.
0: That's an excellent point, but I just kept waiting for him to like start twirling his mustache, too. You know, maybe if the movie had been a scene or two longer, there would have been one of him in the back room going like, We'll get these fools to turn it over to us. yet. Yeah, you'll see. You, you know who he reminded me of a little
2: bit? In, in just basically in the uh, the layout of his kind of hair and, and uh, general demeanor. He was almost a little bit like a like a proto Nick Charles type if, if the thin man was was evil uh, or, you know, at least bad.
1: A hundred percent. I've been sitting here like he reminds me of someone. That's it right there. You nailed it. Um, But I mean, except, you know, slightly more aloof than Nick Charles would ever be. But he. Yeah, I don't know. I loved his the way he reacted to everything that happened to him was very real and not comedic, which is what made it funny. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. The whole, the whole bit where they try to convince Firefly that, you know, Groucho, look, if, if you, you can avoid this war, if you'll uh, just let him insult you and then walk away. And then Groucho, of course, does that completely backwards and slaps the guy across the face with his yeah. glove. Which at first I was like, Bugs Bunny, we'll meet you on the field of money. And th- the way he huffs off the stage, I was like, that's perfect. Exactly what you should do. Because well, he, he genuinely wanted to try to settle this. Well, he had been
2: uh, he'd been a straight man in some other comedies. Like there was a, a, a pre-slash, at the same time, Marx Brothers comedy team of Wheeler and Wolsey, who have been mostly resigned to the mists of history and Turner Classic Movies, and he had been a straight man in some of their movies. Uh, so he has kind of a background as a straight man, and I I think the only reason he wasn't in further Marx Brothers movies was because he was kind of a freelance guy, and he was coming into Paramount about the time they were leaving Paramount for, because he had been an RKO guy before this. So it's yeah. kind of sad because he could have been a great straight man for future Marx Brothers movies.
0: His character archetype reminded me so much, Ron, of the other opera singer in A Night at the Opera. The one that is constantly vying for the woman's affection because, you know, he's got – we kind of talk about Raquel Torres on the periphery here because she really drops out of the movie about, I don't know, 35 minutes into it. But she's supposed to be, like, his love interest, but he's going to tell her, use your feminine wiles to get close to Firefly so you can separate him and Mrs. Teasdale, which never really comes to fruition, (laughs) But would have been fun to see. But he's doing that whole bit the same as with the you know the actresses, in, uh, not at the opera. side. So I don't know. He just reminded me of that. Those two actors reminded me.
2: I mean, it's kind of a stock Marx Brothers character. Uh it's just that the actor keeps uh, changing periodically.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's good. And also, when you said it earlier, Zeppo was replaced by Alan Jones. I realized later, I was like, I'm waiting for Alan Jones, and he's not going to be in this. But that that's what he would have been doing. So, Lindsay, I want to get your opinion of the musical numbers in this thing. Because in the other Marx Brothers movies, there's always a musical part of it. It generally breaks down into Chico and Harpo showing you how good they can play the piano and the harp, which I recommend you go check out at the races and and not at the opera because you get great scenes of that. But in this one, it breaks – we break into full song and dance here.
1: Oh, yeah. It was fully – I was fully into it. And I – so, again, I went in watching this movie knowing nothing about it, and I was like, I'm just going to watch it once, see how I feel, watch it again, and digest. And that's what I did. But when, like, first watch, I was, you know, like taking notes – and my first note was, oh, damn, this is a musical because <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I was just like, oh, OK, they're singing. And then I was like, well, maybe it's just a novel thing and they're doing it once. And then I love the repeat of every time he walked into a room, they sang like the um, leader of Fredonia song and how that came full circle at the end where um, it was sung. And I think they start throwing, you know, like old food and whatever at whoever's seeing it but, but Dumont, yeah. yeah 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 one of i love the we're going to war montage with all of the different types of music and you know like just every different way you can possibly say that they're going to war in musical form i ate it up completely i just um Especially with the banjos. Oh my God, the banjos. Um, (laughs) That really made it for me. Like that was like, I'm all in.
0: I'm a sucker for musical theater, pretty much of any variety. And and we've well established this and there'll be good discussions about this in later episodes, y'all, I promise. But uh, just to tease it, but I I love when uh, the musical part of a performance doesn't overtake what's happening, but it's the good supplement everything and i'm watching this and i'm going man this is like the perfect moment like it doesn't make any sense that they would all break into song and dance but they absolutely should
1: but i love yeah and that's the i think they used it so well as a comedic device within the movie that it just where and i think from the very first song that they did piqued my interest and i just thought like, let's see where they're going to go with this. And the full arc in which they use the music to continually at least get laughs from me. I assume that's what they were going for. Um, <laughs> was, was just perfect.
2: The, this country's going to war song was really funny to me too. So you're not alone. It just kept going in. And, and I've seen this movie <laughs> before. I've seen this movie several times and yet Every time they get to that song, it always takes me by surprise the weird little twists and turns that they take. And then Groucho's dancing just puts it over the top.
0: (laughs) Yes, because he is so like Jim Carrey. Or Jim Carrey is doing a lot of Groucho, I now know, right? Because of the way his joints move in opposite directions of each other. Like, they shouldn't be able to do that, but they are. And, And it's totally, I don't know, it just totally works. And I think, too, the fact that he is, like, Biting out one-liners like Eminem in a rap battle. I mean, he's just <laughs> let, letting them fly. And I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there watching this guy, and I'm going, "I bet you they like people on the set had no idea half of what he even said, because it is coming at you from so many different directions." And I felt like I was watching Groucho at the height of his powers.
1: It was also very like Dolly and Hello Dolly. In yes. I mean, in a very like spinstery way, you know. He's always like, you know. Handing well, figuratively, um, you know, handing out cards and doing like a lot of the songs in that show are just her spitting lyrics like Eminem, as you put it, Jay. Well, I mean,
0: I, I love his opening scene as he walks in. He's like, "Take a card, yeah. okay? I've got 51 others." And yeah. <laughs> then, then he pulls them out again, and the guy turns him down. is like, okay, you know, he <laughs> just doesn't even say anything about it. But that whole bit is so great because it's his too. Because he just has that bug-eyed look every time he turns around, which I guess is just how Groucho looked. But I mean, it was really, it's, it's, it's funny to watch him work against all this other stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think I knew he could sing. I knew all they could all sing, but they, the the whole cast is a great job with that. But I, I, there was something, and I don't know if it's the right term for it or not, Lindsay, but I kept feeling like I was watching some of those square dance scenes from gone with the wind with some of like Dixieland <laughs> stuff breaks out with the banjos and everything. I mean, really, yeah. I felt like I was watching that again.
1: Yeah. no, I fully, fully agree with that. Um, I also like in the first scene um, made me think of it. He when he breaks the fourth wall every now and then I'm like, oh, there it is. He just looks. uh. (laughs) But I do I do appreciate that, like in a comedy, especially a classic one where they they just go for it in that moment, because obviously that's supposed to get a laugh. That's supposed to be funny. But I always
2: when when he does those takes to camera, always, always for that. It always kills me. It always cracks me up. Yeah. Because I, I can see him doing that, like from a stage, and just like looking out to the audience, and and, and just with that expression, even if he doesn't say anything, because sometimes he'll just look at the camera, and that's all he does. And I can see that bringing a house down in, in a packed theater, and it, and it definitely makes me laugh. You know, almost a right. hundred years later. <laughs>
1: I think that really hits the nail on the head for me. Like maybe that's why I find it so funny is because for me, doing that kind of thing is so theatrical and it would, it would kill in a theater.
0: And it's, it has to be done in the right way. Like I've seen a lot of people do that whole break the fourth wall and it doesn't, you know, it's kind of cheesy. It's sort of silly, but the the ones that do it well and make it work, it, it, I don't know. There's something magical about it. It just brings a big grin to my face. And I'm sitting here, you know, smiling now, because I'm listening to YouTube really pop for this and I did as well. I was like this I'd love it when he does that. Just to let us know like can you believe this bullshit? <laughs> you <know>? And then <laughs> just goes on with it. And it's it's hilarious. Just gets getting better and better. And it gets to what I think is is maybe the crown moment of this whole <laughs> thing is when Trentino finds out that Fredonia's war plans are in Mrs. Teasdale's safe for reasons, and he sends in the two worst spies possible to go and get them. And what, like the whole bit of putting on the, the disguises and everything, and where it culminates in that mirror scene, and how long they keep that going between the three of them is astounding. <laughs> for for me, it's even before the mirror scene
2: starts when they're in the bedroom with Mrs. Teasdale. and just how Oh, man, that's good stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it is it's it is a so much fun, and it I don't see how – well, it goes back to one of the things we established when we were talking about the later movies, and I mentioned how Zeppo in, – in one of our previous episodes, I mentioned how Zeppo was the Marx Brothers who would fill in for any of them if they were sick. And then you would have uh, – I think it was Harpo and Chico could do each other's parts – And Harpo could do Groucho's part. And this is just a reminder that, you know, in the 1920s, people were much more likely to get sick than they are now, uh, if only just because of a lack of, you know, modern medicine or whatever. So I can only imagine that these two on the stage had done this from both sides of the mirror, so to speak.
0: Oh yeah, you can tell that it's it's old hat to them. But to see it and what I realized is I'm seeing the inception of a gag that I've seen done in every decade since on everything, from again, Looney Tunes to Pink Panther movies to Chevy Chase, Saturday Night Live stuff in the 70s, the eighties, the nineties, even. I, I'm I'm sitting there thinking I've probably seen Jim Belushi movies where he tried to do this and failed miserably at it like everything else. But you know, he's doing, and I'm watching this and I'm like, man. What a, what a novel idea, and I'm sitting there wondering, like, the truth of it is, these guys probably ripped it off for somebody else for all I know, <laughs> but it's a great gag. And the, the way that it, it, it culminates into the fact that now we've catched Ciccolini and we've got to put him on trial, it's only topped by the fact that this trial is freaking amazing. Like, the entire run of Night Court owes itself to this moment.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's it, – it is a really funny trial, uh, particularly when, when Groucho leaves the judge's station and becomes the defense attorney. Yes. <laughs> and, you, and you get some really good classic uh, Chico uh, malapropisms.
1: The a lemonade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll have a glass. <sighs>
0: Exactly. All of that going on. And when you finally realize that it's, it's all just the farce, because they're going to end up in war. And then we, what amazes me is I didn't know anything about this movie either going into it, Lindsay. And I thought, well, this will end like right before they go to war. And then that'll be the cut. And I'm like, nope, we're actually going to go to war and we're going to blow the set to pieces. And I'm going to have these huge rocks on strings come through the set. Like, I'm, it's like I'm watching Bullet Bob and old Super Mario Brothers come through the set or something. Like, really, like I, I, I was amazed by this and how it completely devolves into utter anarchy.
1: The war for me fully felt like I was watching Monty Python.
0: <laughs> yes. One of the things
2: I noticed for the first time uh, watching it uh, for the podcast was how many times they're nearly crushed to death by things and how many times they're hit. <laughs> Like, I've never noticed before, but uh in the scene where they're barricading the door and there's a big explosion, I'd never noticed that the chair falls and legit hits Groucho on the head.
0: Yeah. Ron, the the problem wasn't with Stonehenge. The problem was that Stonehenge was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's another movie that I own and I've never watched.
0: Oh, but oh, that'll really be one. That's how <laughs> okay.
1: It. So,
0: anyway, I've totally derailed the podcast. So let me get us back on track. It's just, um, it's just
2: in the Marx Brothers' spirit to completely derail for a side tangent.
0: <laughs> I mean, we might as well, right? Yeah. I mean, well, and that, that's what I, I kept looking at, and when I was watching this, because I watched this on some library's website, which was amazing, right? And I'm reading like the little descriptions of it, and it's all about like somebody's. Thesis topic on like anarchy and cinema, and I'm going. I've never thought of the Marx Brothers as anarchists, but man, it really comes off in this. Like this is pure mayhem happening on on screen in front of us. And, and this is
2: why this is the uh, the only Marx Brothers movie that was cited on that website because this is their most uh, this is their most whether they meant it to or not. This is their most anti-war, anti-fascist, most anarchic movie. Even like their previous movies are a little bit more grounded, but this one is the most um, after the fact political, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it is though, because just to talk about the two we've already talked about are basically how to run scams and get away with it. That's what I'm at <laughs> the opera and that day at the races are right. Well, this is how to make a political statement without being overtly political. And, and that's, what's fun about it. It's so subversive. And that, I mean, that's what, Theater and the arts have have always brought us throughout time, right, is that it's a way to talk about things that and mention things and get a point across that it's hard to say in straight discussion because nobody wants to have discourse. And that's not anything new, by the way. Nobody's wanted to talk to each other for 400 friggin' years. So (laughs) how do do we get stuff done? You do it through art.
1: That's why I like the title of this so much, too, because so like duck soup is the saying easy as duck soup. And so I feel like the title of the film is a commentary on like, oh, well, obviously, it's super easy to run a country. It's as easy as duck soup, which is kind of where I thought the title came from. Um, I don't know if that's true. That could be pure conjecture on my part.
0: (laughs) It's as good a guess as any. I'll take it.
2: In the the spirit of the Marx Brothers, we're just going to go with it and see what happens.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah, these guys literally are turn the paint grenade on and let's see what happens. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's what happens the last 15 minutes of this movie. Yeah. I think they all switch sides at least twice and fight against them at one time or another, which <laughs> uh, I mean, again, that's kind of the commentary though, right? It's like, eh, today you're the good guy, today you're the bad guy. I mean, everybody banged on Benicio Del Toro for that, that character in uh, Last Jedi, but Ryan Johnson wasn't wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, it just depends on what side of the coin you're on today.
2: Yeah, you're not wrong, Jay. That's... <laughs> Talk about things that I that never thought were influenced by the Marx Brothers. Let's go to Star
0: Wars. Well, you know, Nick and I have a thing. Everything eventually comes back to Star Wars. So in, in spirit for him, I had to be. Uh, well, George Lucas stole so much stuff
2: from every other genre of movie. Why would he not sneak at least one or two Marx Brothers references in?
0: I mean, yeah, look, the first the first cultural you appropriate is your own. I do want to talk about the end, though, and the... Complicated way that Trentino winds up in like in the stocks, but in the door, because they're blowing the door apart, but they catch him in the right spot. And as only Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire could say, a drive-by fruiting. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just kind of a,
2: a classic Marx Brothers bit, uh, or at least classic Marx Brothers philosophy, because they're they're so willing to, they're just the guys who are just standing back, just hurling jokes at everything, right? So it kind of makes sense that he's going to poke his head through the door, and they're just going to use it as an as a as an opportunity to pelt him with uh, fruit of dubious quality.
0: Not only that, they win the war at that moment. They've been completely overrun on the battlefield. <laughs> but finally, when the supreme leader shows up and you take him down, well, it, it goes to show you, I think they're trying to make commentary, is that eh, you take out the leader of these places and eh, the rest of it is going to fall apart pretty easy. And they're not wrong in that.
2: Look at what happened to Italy when the people turned against Mussolini uh, yeah. speak to tie it back to people who hated this movie. Right. And I thought he just hated it based on the milita- on the designs of the, Fredonia, the Fredonian general's uniforms and how many of those aspects he uh, Mussolini stole for his own look. But uh, <laughs> maybe there was a little bit of uh, priscience on the part of Il Duce.
0: Could have been, could have been. Anybody got anything else before I wrap it up?
2: No, this movie just kind of ends abruptly, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah it did. It's
2: just, just sort of like, It's
1: Podcast like, well we're, end abruptly. <laughs> it's,
2: well, we're out of ideas and we're kind of. Pelt Margaret Dumont Dumont's fruit, so.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Might as yeah. Well,
1: also, well and I, again, I really... that goes back to bringing the music full circle as the final, like, comedic punch.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good point. Now we now we just need to salvage this and make it uh, some something tied back to the podcast.
0: <laughs> well, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Ron and Lindsay, what are yours for Duck Soup?
1: I. Absolutely loved it. Loved the physical comedy. Their comedic timing was perfection. It's clear that this was not their first rodeo. I loved it. I would give it a large popcorn. 100% going to watch it again and make all of my other friends watch it too.
2: So Duck Soup was the number five movie on the AFI's uh, 100 years, 100 laughs ahead of A Night at the Opera, A Day at the Races, Horse Feathers, and uh, Monkey Business. Uh, so this is one of their most critically acclaimed and beloved movies. Uh, so in that spirit, and I forget where I was going with this when I started this whole thing. So um,
0: Something along the lines of, uh, it, you were making a point that it's, it should have been right there because it deserves it was what you were getting at. Right.
2: So since it's ranked so high by, by people who know more than me, When it comes to comedy, I can't help but give this movie an extra large popcorn, Uh, even if it had nothing else funny other than the mirror sequence. It would still be worth watching. But as Lindsay pointed out, and as Jay has pointed out, those song and dance numbers are so funny and so energetic and Groucho's dancing is just so hilarious that. I have to – and that, that poor peanut vendor is just so tormented that I can't help but like be a complete and total mark for this movie. Uh,
0: listen, I, I think you both have nailed it on the head. There's absolutely everything right about this movie and every reason in the world to watch it. And if you haven't up to this point and we've now talked about it for an hour, please go find it and watch it. It is totally worth your time. Even if for nothing more than you just see everything that it influenced, but just by itself, it is 67 minutes of absolute comedy platinum. I mean, it is, it is beyond gold. It is one of the funniest things I've ever watched. And I am not big on broad comedies. I don't do slapstick. Y'all know this, but I love this movie. I absolutely do. I'm, Finding ways to find a DVD of it or something because I want to own it and have it in my collection because it's definitely something I want to introduce people to. I'm glad to hear Lindsay say she's going to make her friends watch this. I'm I'm like yes, you you should make people watch. This is a great. Throw it on like at your New Year's party or whatever before you watch New Year's Evil and other cool things like that. Throw this on in the middle as a a break because it is an absolute break for it. And I think I texted you somewhere, Ron, and not to get too political here, but like I'm watching this and I'm going like this doesn't seem like too far from a lot of administration's work, right? (laughs) Like I mean not not even talking about the current one. I mean just any of them. Like if you've studied U.S. history at all, you're
1: like – yeah, I mean, or history in general. I was just going to say you don't have to yeah, it's not just US history. Like it's it's accurate. Yeah, Feels accurate.
0: I mean, it, it totally works. And I think again as a as just a piece of art with so much to say in such a short amount of time. It's so much fun, but just as a good funny a break. It is absolutely perfect remedy for a long week. And that's how I watched it. And I'd recommend you do to work a long, hard week. Come home, watch this for an hour and it will relieve all of your stuff. You'll have a great time. Extra large popcorn for me on this one too, Ron. This one was absolute fun. And I'm so glad we got, do it. And I'm glad, Lindsay, you got to join us in on our Mark's Madness. This has been a lot of fun and your second official review with us now. So, yay, more fun stuff to come. Tell folks how they can follow you on the social media if they choose to. And, hey, if you got a podcast you're into, go ahead and put it over.
1: Cool. You guys can follow me on Instagram at Lindsay underscore Lou underscore who. That's L-I-N-Z underscore L-U underscore W-H-O and podcasts i'm into right now i listen to the tony kornheiser podcast uh every day so if you are at all a fan of dc sports then you should totally listen to him if you're not already and the stone cold steve austin podcast please please listen to it it's so great
2: okay you guys can find me on social media at hollywood ron on the twitter's You can read my writing on Dead of Geek. I will be talking about the upcoming season of Westworld, hopefully, and I will definitely be talking about The Walking Dead because I'm still on that beat 10 years after it started.
0: Yeah, that is an absolute classic one. I agree with you there. That's fantastic. (laughs) Folks, you can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com, as well as feeds to everywhere you can subscribe and download the show. And as you heard in the little commercial before the show, we're doing a little fun contest right now. We need some more written reviews, so we're bribing you. You give us a five-star written review on Google or Apple or Stitcher wherever you can leave one, and you say how awesome you think we are, and you put a suggestion for a single movie that you think we should do that we haven't already done. We're going to put all those in a hat. We're going to draw Draw them later this summer, and we're going to just do a random extra review just from you guys and your reviews. So please do that; it helps us uh, spread the word about the show. Of course, you can follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and find Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook as well. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron and Lindsay, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip.
2: Thank you for listening to Filmstrip.